I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Hey there, Percaptons. Today, I am joined by Michael Tremblay. You might know Michael Tremblay. If you don't, you should. He writes for modernstoicism.com. He has an app on the iOS store. It's called Stoa Meditations. He has a podcast called Stoa Conversations. There are links to these things in the description of today's episode, and I would encourage you to check those things out. He did his PhD on Epictetus. I can't remember from what college, but it's probably more important that he did his PhD on Epictetus than we give any credit to the university he went to. I believe he is a proud Canadian, and he's also an accomplished martial artist. And this conversation was not planned. A lot of you in the Patreon suggested that I have Michael on. Michael and I have spoken before. I'd like to think we're friends, but we've never met in person. So maybe we're just more like professional acquaintances who kind of like each other a bit. And I have actually been on his podcast. So it was easy to invite him. I was happy to do it. I'm always happy to follow the direction and grant the wishes of those who support this podcast financially. It's very much appreciated. And on that topic, I have just one new patron to thank today. A shout out all to yourself, John T. Bonacorsi. I think I've said that right. Or John T. Bonacorsi. It's double C's. It seems Italian. And so I feel like it should be Bonacorsi. But if I'm saying it wrong, I've now said it wrong a bunch of times, John. So I'll stop. But thank you very much for becoming a patron of this podcast. If you are not yet a patron of this podcast, you can become one by going to stoicismpod.com forward slash members. It costs just five bucks a month. You get ad-free access. You get to make suggestions about the show and guests and those things. And you get access to private conversations. I plan on inviting Michael into our private Discord community so that we can have a conversation that involves all of you, patrons, giving you direct access to Michael to ask questions that you'd like to hear him answer. Again, to become a patron of this program, go to stoicismpod.com forward slash members. Now we are going to take a really brief sponsorship break, hear from a couple of sponsors, and then I will return and you'll hear my conversation with Michael Tremblay. Stay with me. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. 
you may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, Prakapton. Welcome back. Today, I'm joined with a fan favorite. A lot of people asked for this individual to come onto this podcast. Um, maybe he's surprised to hear that, but I don't think so. His name is Michael Tremblay. He's an MMA fighter. He's, a, uh, he's an all-around talented writer and the co-creator and co-founder of Stoa, Stoic Meditations, which is an app on uh, the Google Play Store and on Apple Podcasts. And of course, you have a you have a podcast that's in the same vein and with the same company called Stoa Conversations, which is excellent, and that I've been on. And I'm just now realizing it's taken me this long to invite you onto this podcast. I feel a little bit bad because I appeared on yours a while ago. But welcome to the show, man. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Tanner. Good to chat with you again. I think we're going to talk a little bit about what you've got going on, if you've got anything going on. But then let's talk about rage and regret. And I released an episode, what will be last week at this point, on that topic, regret specifically. And I know you spend a lot of time in MMA-style fighting, maybe MMA exactly that kind of fighting. And I'm interested to explore what prompted you to take that on, if it's a treatment, a self-treatment for frustration, rage, anger of your own. But before that, what have you been up to, man? Yeah, so I mean, as you mentioned, have the Stoa app, Stoic Meditation app. Um, we've been putting a lot of work into that, a lot of new courses, um, a lot of new content on that. We've also got our podcast. So really just trying to, I think it's I think it's kind of a similar, in a similar vein to what I understand your project to be, Tanner, which is we, we want a, a type of Stoicism that is accessible, but also accurate. And I think that's like a hard, a hard middle ground to land it on. Is. Yeah, nobody seems happy when you try to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's either it's either too watered down or um it's it's you know, I, I don't want it to be obscure and non-helpful um for people either. Um just for the sake of I don't you don't want it to be pedantic, I would say is the is is the is the worst form of it. So that's what that's what I'm trying to do, trying to 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 work on that mission and really taking up um I would say Epictetus is, I'm a big Epictetus guy. I did my PhD on, on Epictetus, as you know, um, and taking up his goal of, of teaching Stoicism in a way that's transformative and gives people a kind of a program to practice. So co combining theory with practice, 
um, figuring out ways to uh, give people exercises that actually help them, um, yeah, feel happier, improve their character, entrench their understanding of stoicism. And that's what we're trying to do with the app. So that's that's where my focus is right now. Do you feel a little bit... In- I feel like this sometimes with this podcast because I'm trying to hit a very similar mark. Do you feel like a therapist sometimes? And, and are you cautious about that? Like, are you like, oh, I better be careful how much advice I'm giving and how I'm giving it, or I'm going to break a law <laughs> or <Yeah>. something? <laughs> I mean, that's, so that's something like even, even with therapy, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, but I think even therapists are cautious about being prescriptive and cautious about being, you should live this way, or this is, this is the right way to do things. And then I think people are attracted to philosophy because it, it skips that step. It says, well, no, this is the way you should live. It gives a conception of the good life and to, to different degrees of particularity, but at least Stoicism offers, says there's some wrong ways to live and there's some right ways to live. And if you do this, you're a bad person. And if you do this, you're a good person. So when when I talk about it, I mean, I try to stay at the level of the Stoic set, right? And you're trying trying to, to to frame it in that because I know I'm not a I'm not an expert in contemporary psychology or contemporary therapy. But I, but I, but I do also think that there's important to have spaces for people that take stands and take positions and say, well, you know, you should, I think you should, you should do this, or I think you should be this kind of way. And I, I, I don't want to shy away from those kinds of conversations, but I, but I, I understand, I understand your concern as well. So, I mean, I, I, I haven't really felt the, I haven't felt the concern about I'm, I'm crossing a line, but I, I am aware that there, there is a kind of um, contemporary psychological expertise that you, you want to be careful about. The thing that I find most difficult about it, if I'm being honest, is that I think I feel like I've, maybe you feel this way too. I feel like I've found the answer. Do you ever feel that way about stoicism? Like it's so clearly, obviously the answer to so many things that you have to pump the brake sometimes to realize that, of course, there are other answers to whatever the thing is. But I'll be out in public and I'll hear someone use the word good or they'll be having a conversation about how to make something excellent. And I feel like, I always feel like uh, interjecting and saying, but do you have a definition of what good means and then like drawing into the, them into some kind of Socratic conversation that would be quite annoying to them and everyone around me and make me look like a pedantic ass probably. <laughs> Well, I feel like I almost have the opposite issue where I feel like maybe I'm not as hardcore into stoicism as sometimes people expect me to be, where I feel like, you know, I'll be like, oh, Aristotle actually said some things that are pretty compelling too. And I've had, you know, I've had people <laughs> read, read threads on Facebook where people are like, oh, my, like, Michael's not a stoic or he doesn't believe this. And I, I think it's important to stay open-minded about there being different ways to live. And really for me, the kind of the, the meta goal is that you're living an examined life. And I think you were hitting on that when you were like, well, do you have a definition for good? For me, that's the meta goal. I, I don't think there's any value to being unreflective. But then once you're reflective, I think stoicism is one answer, but I try to I try to keep the humility that that might be that it might not be the right one or there might be something that I'm missing. You know, we're still we're still living, we're still learning. Might not we might not feel this way 20 years from now. Um so it is a answer, but I try to keep some as long as people are, are engaging honestly in philosophy, for me that's the standard to clear and then if the answer is different, I, I have a lot of space for that. Okay, so now I've got to ask, what brought you to MMA? Because you're not just someone who does this as a, you're not an enthusiast, although I would suppose you're also that. You must have a genuine love for the sport, but you're quite accomplished in the space, at least the way it seems online. You've won some awards and participated in some, what I perceive to be large matches. How did, is that, first of all, is that true? And how did you get drawn to that? Did it have anything to do with stoicism or your search for, uh, you know, the right way to live, so to speak? Yeah, great question. I mean, I'm glad it's true. Otherwise, I would be in a rough spot. I'd be like, oh. (laughs) Um, So my specialization is in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've been like a lifelong martial artist. My specialization is in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I did compete in MMA. Uh, I had four amateur fights and a pro fight. So there's different levels that you can be 
of fighting pro and that puts me at certainly the lowest level but i've definitely like checked that bucket list you know got in got into the cage and that's that's kind of you know ufc rule fight ufc style that's an organization um but my specialization is in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is uh, a, one of the martial arts, one of the martial arts that gets mixed in to be MMA, right? And that's the, the, the chokes, the arm bars, the submissions and stuff like that. And so I've competed internationally. I mean, I, I was a very serious Jiu-Jitsu competitor for a long time. I have won a lot of kind of tournaments, I would say, at the, the provincial and national level in Canada and then competed internationally and had some success internationally. In terms of what got me to that, I mean, I'm happy to just to, to stay down this rabbit hole. But for me, I've always had this real interest in crossover between disciplines. So I, I was attracted to martial arts because martial arts was understood, was always taught uh, in an ethical way. So you have kind of sport or athletics, and then you had martial arts. And for me, martial arts always involved character development. We were not athletes. We were martial artists. There was an ethical obligation, a kind of Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. We're going to teach you how to kill people. But what comes with that is the responsibility to be able to control your anger, to control your character, and to you know be just, be kind, stand up uh, for the 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 weak, stand up against bullies, things like this. And there, so there was always this there was this physical dimension, but also this moral ethical dimension. And I would say martial arts was the first place because I didn't come into philosophy until my twenties. Martial arts was the first place, and I, I should say also I, I was not uh, in from a religious family. Martial arts was the first place where I had explicit moral education, kind of explicit discussion of no, this is what a good person looks like. This is the right way to act, or you're not living up to your responsibilities. You're not living up to your potential ethically and morally, um, not just in terms of your grades, not just in terms of your performance at a sport, but in terms of the kind of person you could be. And then, and then, okay, so there's that moral education, but then what's the vehicle for uh, obtaining that transformation? What's that vehicle for becoming the better person? And then martial arts combines those two. Well, it's by training. It's by encountering hardships. It's by doing difficult things. Um, it's by being put in situations that make you uncomfortable. It's by being disciplined, working on your temperance and your self-control and things like this. So I, I wouldn't say I was a fully formed adult who came to MMA or jiu-jitsu as, as a way to work on, you know, anger problems or as, as, as a search for an outlet, I wouldn't say that I, you know, I started that rather young and it, it really shaped the way I saw, I would say life. I think I, I ended up being attracted to ancient Greek philosophy because I saw, oh, this is the same kind of question. This is the question that the martial artists are asking, oh, which is grounded in, in kind of an Eastern tradition, which is what is the right way to live? And then how do we become the kind of people that can do that? And so I see a, an incredibly strong connection. And Epictetus sees this connection too, right? He makes a lot of references to wrestling. He makes a lot of references to athletes. And they're not one in the same. And he doesn't recommend that you become a wrestler to become a better Stoic. I think that's something that I, I I would argue for, or at least that it's one way to do it. But that's not what Epictetus says. But Epictetus says, look, we can learn a lot as philosophers from wrestlers. We can learn a lot from athletes, um, really, because it's this, it's this, uh, it's this craft, um, and it's this development of a skill in a way that's very analogous to developing our characters. It's also, now that you say that out loud, and I hope nobody listening is going to think that I'm talking about them in particular, I I'll say that I'm talking about myself because I think this is probably true. And, and I bet that it includes a lot of people who are listening. When you are f 
philosophically minded first or when you're philosophy forward, it does tend to be the case that you are not the kind of person that gets out of the book, gets out of the classroom and goes and gets physical. And I, I would say almost that there is a tacit fear or discomfort with being physical. I mean, I don't see a lot of people in the philosophical world. You are very much an outlier in this regard, right? I don't see a lot of philosophers going out and hitting the mat and, and arm barring people, or as you said, learning how to kill them, um, but but using that, using that knowledge uh, well and safely and all that, of course. And that's interesting to me because it makes me think of Epictetus's division between the half of the thing that you're learning is in the books, but the other half is going out there and in actually doing and practicing and failing at doing it. And some people, usually those really deep in the weeds of Stoicism, will argue that virtue is not a practice. <laughs> I've always found that conversation rather tedious and, and uh, pedantic, as you said in the beginning. But you've got to you've got to read, you've got to learn, and then you've got to go out there and actually do some work. And I think that a lot of us, me included, probably would benefit with some sort of putting yourself in a position where you might get physically hurt, where you have to physically exert, because it is, for some of us, for me, I don't want to speak for too many people, it is easy to exert brain energy almost at the expense of the physical energy. I, I do almost no physical work. Right? I go to the gym three days a week for an hour each week, but it's not, or for an hour each week or each day, but it's not, I'm not, not doing a lot of work, right? And the idea of doing MMA is, ter is, is terrifying to me, but I can't express why, because to me, I'm, I'm not worried about getting hurt. You're, you're doing it with friends in a way. So it's not like somebody's going to kill you while you're in the, while you're in the class, but I have the same feeling about boxing. And, and I wonder, you make it sound as though you approached martial arts in general at a very young age, you maybe never had this fear. Did you find yourself in life the reverse? Was it difficult for you to approach philosophy? Or do you think having the physical aspect kind of sorted a bit and having it introduce you to doing some thinking, did, did that make it easy to, to go in that direction later in your life? Yeah, I mean, so for me, there's, there's I think that you're, you can get a lot done and you can be very productive with your time if you mix different kinds of things. So for me, my PhD was, you know, eight hours of studying, three hours of training. And that is like a very good rhythm. And it's a very nice, it's a very nice rhythm. And, and they complement each other, right? When you're, when you're training, you're getting out of your, out of your self-reflective, really high level spot that, that philosophy brings you into. And then it kind of resets you for the next day of studying. So I think that balance is really helpful. I wasn't uncomfortable with the world of thinking. I think those, I think those things are not, you know, they're not analogous. There's something scary about doing, there's something socially scary about doing any sort of craft in public that you're not, that you're not you know, you don't feel like you're an expert in yet, or you don't feel skilled skilled at. I would feel the same way if I went to improv class as the way anybody would feel going to the first jiu-jitsu class, like doing anything uh, with a group of people that you're not, there's something socially scary about that that I think is good to work on. And then there's just, there's, once you're an expert in kind of domain, there's just analogies, right? Once you're comfortable doing one sport, you, you say, okay, well, I, I have a kind of grounding. I can, I can, I feel I can, I can apply this somewhere else. But I, I think that what is important about sport and I think this can apply to any craft. I don't think it just has to be martial arts or MMA. But I think it is important to find the most difficult things you can that are the safest or have the least consequences. And I think MMA is very good for that because you go in and you simulate a life or death fight. Jiu-Jitsu is the same way. Someone's trying to choke you. You simulate a life or death fight but you have none of those consequences of somebody actually you know, harming you, right? You're, it's a consenting activity. And what that allows you to do is it allows you, because we talk about practice and stoicism, what does practice look like? Well, I, I probably want to find out where I'm weak, probably want to find out what I need to improve. And how am I going to do that 
probably not going to be by sitting in a chair. It's going to be by going out and, and encountering situations where my courage is tested, where my self-control is tested, you know, where my capacity for justice or kindness is tested. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to fail at that in situations that have serious consequences. I don't want to, you know, there's a moment where my courage matters and I just, I, I, I back down and, um, you know, I don't stand up to the bully and they continue to pick on somebody. Or there's a moment where um, my self-control is, is tested and I fail and I scream at somebody I shouldn't have screamed at or hit somebody I shouldn't have hit. And so now I've, I've, I've tested but in kind of an unsafe environment. So I, I, you know, is there a way to simulate that? And for me, sport, especially, especially martial arts is the best way I've found to find the most difficult thing that has the least real world consequences pretending to fight. Right. Um, and that for me, I think is what it makes it uh, particularly well suited for that stoic training. Can I ask just because now I'm curious and maybe other people listening would be curious. Maybe they want to give MMA a try. What does your first day look like? Like, are they like, all right, Tanner, you're a big guy, 6'1", 320 pounds. Let's, let's just throw you right in. Is, is that how it is? Or do you get to practice some things? And is it like karate where, and I know that that's probably an insult to compare karate <laughs> to what you do. I apologize. Um, but is there like this very basic low level, more like preparing to do things before you actually do things? Yeah, I mean, we're gonna go down the martial arts. Like, I'm I'm happy to dig down the martial arts rabbit hole. So for me, let's do it. I'm, this is no longer a stoicism <laughs> podcast. Yeah, welcome. Practical martial arts, welcome. <laughs> In martial arts, I would say there's two main divisions. There's those that have active resistance and there's those that don't have active resistance. So even there, uh, Tanner, you haven't, you haven't trained before, right? Uh, a boxing a bit, maybe for like a year, but not seriously. So even there, though, you, you made a reference to karate. There's different kinds of karate, which I would say there's some karate that has active resistance and there's some karate that don't have active resistance. And I'd say that's the... That's the crucial distinction because when you get active resistance, that's when you're getting the thing that I talked about is you're getting, you're getting feedback both physically, you know, somebody's hitting you or somebody's, uh, doing things to you. You don't want them to do right. You're, it's a, it's a battle of wills. You're sparring. You, you want to, you know, get on top of them, but now they're on top of you and they're holding you down and you can't get out. There's that kind of battle of wills. There's also an opportunity, um, really iterative feedback, I would say. So I thought I was good at this technique. I tried to do it. It didn't work. Now I've gotten feedback now I need to improve based on the feedback. Um, those are two things. And then what comes with those things is, is also this, this, you know, working hard exercise, this kind of fit, it being embodied. Um, I think you need those things to get the benefits that I'm talking about. And, and those martial arts, boxing, as you described, jujitsu, Muay Thai, mixed martial arts, wrestling, judo, that's not an exhaustive list, but th these kinds of, these, these sports with active feedback, active resistance uh, against the partner, I think that's most crucial. Unfortunately, that's very uncomfortable, right? So it's like going into a, a chess club and you know, you're sitting down and someone's beating you at chess, but if they beat you at chess, they put you in an arm bar or, you know, they get you in a headlock. If they take your knight, it's very uncomfortable. So sometimes what some clubs will do, both in MMA and jujitsu, and is you'll start with drills. And the drills is basically to keep the chess analogy. Um, this is how the pieces work. This is how the board works. This is how you can move them around, but you're not actually playing a game against somebody else. And so many clubs will start with that. Some might have a beginner program, three months, six months, just that no sparring. And the reason for that, I would say is because look, it's going to be a lot. It's going to be very intense when you start sparring, even if the person's being nice, it's just going to be intense. It's simulating something that I think is, is kind of well, primal, but just, I would say it, it's, it's really connecting with, with a part of your nature that, that pulls out. Okay. You know, this fight or flight 
immediate response. And so you want to have as much context as possible going into that. So clubs will do that. They'll also mix it with a bit of exercise um, and then a bit of movement. Honestly, there's like some gymnastics components, right? If you've never, if you've never rolled around on the ground, you haven't done a back roll since you were, you know, uh, six years old, it's, it's a weird movement. It's a weird way to move your body. You know, if you never practice throwing a punch, you never practice throwing a knee, some of this, just this, this basic movement skills. Um, so that's it. I would say there's, there's, there's the technique drilling, there's the movement warm up kind of component, and then there's the sparring component. And depending on the club, they might not have the sparring component in the beginner class. They might have it in the beginner class, but I would say hopefully very nice and hopefully with somebody who, who's meeting you where you're at and kind of uh, plugging into your level of experience. I'm thinking of, uh, while you were talking about it being gentle and, and comparing it to chess at the very outset, I got the vision of, do you remember Full Metal Jacket where they're punishing Private Pile with a bunch of soap and socks? Do you remember that scene? I remember that. I don't know where you're going with it, but I remember that well, scene. Well, I'm imagining someone sticking a bunch of rooks in a sock, and that's what's happening at these really hardcore chess fights to compare to MMA. Yeah, exactly. If you lose your, if you lose your piece, that's a, that's a whack. Yeah, you're in big trouble. <laughs> that's a paddling, as they would say in The Simpsons. Okay, so if somebody wants to get involved in this, are, are there recommendations for certain... And then I, I promise everyone we're going to switch to talking about stoicism, but but I find this fascinating, and I imagine a lot of my listeners will as well. Is Are there outfits or badges or something that you look for to ensure that the uh, school that you join or the club that you join is accredited in some way that it has a likelihood to be a good place to be as opposed to, you know, John down the street is teaching MMA in his garage, something like that? Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I'll, I'll stick with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I know the most about. Yes, I'm sorry I keep conflating them. I, I'm understanding it's different. I'm just not used to it. No, no. And and so MMA is like, that's the broader category, right? Like that's philosophy. And then Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is you know, ancient Greek philosophy. It's one part of it. No, no, no. You said it. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is stoicism. There we go. All right, we're there. <laughs> there we go. I, I wish. Um, then I could then I could just do one thing all the time. The one thing that I would say is that if you're if you're if you're interested in grappling, then I would recommend Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, wrestling, or judo. And so you might have somebody teaching grappling in a club that is not one of those. Uh, so you might have again a karate school that is teaching grappling. Some of those classes are going to be good. Some of those classes people are going to know what they're doing. But you you generally want to stick to stick to specialization, right? This is this is all that we do. This is what we know how to do well. And we're not just offering this program because we want more people to come in. And then in terms of in terms of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you want to make sure that somebody has a black belt. If you're in a smaller area, has an association with a black belt. There is questions of lineage, but I think that can be hard if you don't know going in. But really, if, if the person has, if the person, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts, they're kind of like getting your PhD. Like mine took 10 years of serious training and competition. It's a long time to get one of those. Uh, so it, 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 it represents a, a serious dedication to the sport and a position where somebody is in a position to teach. It doesn't mean they're in a good, they're a good teacher. And if you don't like the club, I'd recommend going somewhere else you know don't don't force yourself if you're not enjoying it but um the person at least knows their jiu-jitsu um so that's the safest thing at a high level the other thing i would say is there there again there's like any other craft the most important thing is that you enjoy it and you keep doing it so if you look up the most impressive club in your city and you go there and everybody's really intense or it's not the vibe you're looking for that's not going to be helpful to you that the coach is 20% better there or the students are 20% better if you stop training after 3 months so like anything else you know, don't be afraid to shop around a little bit and find a club that fits your personality and fits what you're looking for. Okay, great. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from some sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk about regret and we're going to talk about anger management to whatever degree we can. Stay with us. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. 
Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe. And we're back. Michael, you're laughing at the snaps I do to indicate uh, edits uh, in post-production. But, you know, that's the that's the life, man. You're a podcaster, too. You know, it's a struggle. They were strong snaps. Was that, I, was, I was impressed. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, uh, my fingers have been to uh, MMA, the Brazilian, <laughs> Brazilian jiu-jitsu fingers. Let's talk a little bit about uh, regret, because we talked about it earlier in the week, and also anger. I think there's a strong association in general with things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, MMA in general, that the people in it are angry. I, of course, know that that's not true. You, of course, know that that's not true, I would think, although I'm sure there are outliers, people who go there because they're angry to deal with anger issues. I'm wondering if you might be able to talk about your own experiences with anger and rage, if you've had them at all, or any anecdotes you could tell that might share a stoic viewpoint or in some way how you've worked through that or how people you know have worked through that. Yeah, so the the stoic view of anger is that somebody's harmed you or somebody that you care about, somebody's done a harm and they deserve to be punished, right? That's the, that I would say is the simplest way I could put that. That's from, that's from Seneca. And so I view the stoic, a lot of people look at anger as being reactionary, subconscious, out of your control. Well, you know, he, he, he just can't control himself. He's just an angry person. And I don't think anger is like that. I think anger is actually quite intelligent. And the example we used to use in, in my martial arts club is, you know, say that person can't control their anger. It's like, well, if they can't control their anger, they would lose their anger when they're going to buy groceries. The police would come, they would lose their anger at the police, then they would be in jail, then they would lose their temper in jail, and then, you know, th- th- that might be the end of them, right? So if you see somebody who actually has a kind of pathological inability to control themselves, we're talking about like a serious, a serious pathological issue, those people are not the 95% of cases when we're talking about people that have anger problems, right? In that case, you're actually, it's actually a kind of an intelligent response to the situation. It's a perception of the situation. And I would say it is a kind of a disposition towards thinking either I'm vulnerable, so I'm, I'm being harmed, bad things are happening to me, or a disposition to think about how do we, how do we deal with harm? Because you could, you could have that. You could say, oh, I'm harmed and you could get kind of depressed. Oh, life is, I'm very sad. So then anger is also this component of, well, if I'm being harmed, somebody deserves punishment. There actually has to be a reaction to that. And so I think there's, in anger, there's these two dispositional states. I'm being harmed and B, somebody needs to be punished for it. 
there's a consequence. Even if that's just the universe, God needs to be punished. You know, like something that I'm just mad at everything. And so when dealing with anger, I think it's about confronting those two things. And I think for me, I actually haven't struggled with anger. We were talking about this before we started. I'm not a very angry person. And I think part of that is the stoic training. But I think part of that is also this idea that I don't think that people need to be punished. I think I honestly end up becoming more sad or more kind of um, not not uh, offensive if I, if I get kind of down on myself or I think, woe is me. I think it kind of stays in that sadness part and it doesn't become anger because it doesn't become directed onto other people, which is something I think is just kind of the way that I am. I've always been like that. I've just never really been a very angry person. I would say, ironically, you know, without getting into too much personal details, I was wronged by somebody a couple of years ago and I found myself angry and I actually found myself really unable to deal with my anger because I'd never been angry before. And I was like, I don't know how to, don't really know how to get over this because uh, I don't really have the tools in place because it's an, it's an unusual emotion for me to feel. And I found myself kind of spiraling in the same kind of thought process and looping over and over and over again. Okay. So so this is interesting because I think most people listening would think that a person who is into mixed martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu in particular, would know exactly how to deal with their anger. So so can you talk a little bit about how it's not that, what what do I want to ask here? I want to ask Fighting doesn't seem to do anything to help the thing you were struggling with. And was that surprising to you? Because physical exertion of energy and anger is, I think, what a lot of some people think, many people think, is a way to deal with stress and anger. And you're saying that for you, it wasn't. So I think there's, I think there's kind of two distinctions. I think that's a, that's a great point, Tanner. And I think there's kind of two levels of anger here. I think there's one, there's kind of a dispositional high buzz you know, like somebody, you're walking down the street and somebody bumps into you and you're oh, like, there's that kind of initial reaction that you're just kind of ready to get set off. Or, you know, you're driving through traffic and you're flipping somebody off. Absolutely sport helps with that. Absolutely punching a bag. Uh, absolutely grappling helps with that. And maybe that's why I'm like, I've never really been an angry person. Maybe I say that because I've always done martial arts. So I've always had that kind of turned uh, tuned down. I remember I was on a, I was really stressed at work um, a couple months ago and I was coming back from a long business trip and I was walking down the street and somebody was like blocking my way and I had this like impulse. So you talk about stoicism, this impression, then you get to assent to it or not. And I had this impulse to like almost, you know, push my bag into them, almost like, you know, like lash out at them, like get out of my way kind of thing. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's not normal. I don't normally feel that way. Um, that's a weird kind of impression for me to be receiving. And I was like, you know, mindful enough to be like, that's not the kind of thing I want to assent to. It's not the kind of way I want to be. And I think that speaks to how when, when your stress gets high, when you, when you're not getting um, ways to exert that stress, maybe sticking to a stoic model here, maybe, you know, you're getting more difficult and you're going to get more difficult impressions to deal with. Your gut reactions are going to be, it's going to require a lot more mindfulness. Uh, And so I think, I think this exercise, you know, whether that's fighting or not, but just kind of being in your body, having an outlet, that's a nice way to kind of reset those impressions that you're dealing with and kind of tune those down. And that's kind of different to, but that's a different question to the one of like, you know, I, maybe I have a family member that did something wrong, you know, when I was younger and now I have this, this, this real anger for, towards this person. Those are kind of two separate questions. And I don't think that flipping someone off in traffic. And then I, you know, I've thought about it and I still feel like I've been really wronged. Those are two different kinds of anger. And I think that the, the fighting helps that one kind. It helps, it helps tune down the, the, the intensity of those impressions you're receiving. It kind of helps you reset back to a baseline. But, um, 
it doesn't, it doesn't, I think, answer those more complicated questions, which are really questions of kind of emotional therapy, right? Deeper philosophical questions. So we're talking about the, a very physical, fast emotional anger that happens in the moments and that really time and expression of some sort of energy seems to solve. That's a great way of putting it. And then there's this deeper hurt that is like more, much more of a psychological or mental sort of emotion. Like you, like your, your example was maybe you were wronged by someone years ago, or maybe somebody deeply betrayed you. That is an ongoing, much longer lasting thing than a sudden burst of anger or rage. I think that's a, that, that's a very useful distinction. So exercise can exercise of any sort, punching a bag, as you said, can help with that first sort. What did you do two years ago to deal with this second sort? And and how long did it take you to figure it out? Yeah, I think it took me a long time to figure it out. And I think ironically- You're I, like, I'm still figuring it out now. And you slam your laptop. I'm still figuring it out. We're all, we're, we're, we're all, we are all works in, uh, we're all works in progress here. And I have no, no interest in claiming to be anything close to a sage. But I think the, the, the interesting thing for my journey there was that I think this happens all the time in stoicism. And I'm interested, Tanner, if you felt the same way, I'm sure people listening have, is when you practice stoicism for the first time, or even me for a number of years, you end up with this kind of meta stress, this meta anger, this meta regret, which is like, I'm angry at the fact that I'm angry. Uh, I'm frustrated at the fact that I'm frustrated, or I'm, I'm sad about the fact that I'm sad because I'm now judging myself. Um, I'm, now, I'm now saying, well, a stoic wouldn't do this. And so I think what, when I experienced that, you know, let's say talk about it as a, as a betrayal, I think it's a good way of putting it. When I experienced that, I tried to, I would say I tried to numb, which is to say I would try to have not leaned into the feeling because it's a, well, it doesn't make sense. It's not, it's not a, it's not a real harm. It's not, you know, it's an indifferent. It's what somebody else, you know, it's somebody else's behavior that's outside of my control. I acted well in that situation that their behavior is not up to me and so on and so forth. And I feel like I expected the other side of anger to be equanimity or to be nothingness. And I think what I learned there is like, well, you're going to have kind of strong feelings about the situation or strong feelings about this person. And the other side of that doesn't have to be nothing, but we just don't want the other side of that to be a kind of um, a kind of a passion, right? A kind of a really something that something that's not serving me, and it's not true, and it's not helping me in any sort of way. It's kind of like this this maladaptive emotional response based on me not looking at things the right way. So I mean, that's kind of that's kind of vague because it's because it's personal. But trying to say that the, the way that I got through it was was by letting myself stop trying to 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 numb it or block it or meta judge it and really actually lean into it so I could get to the other side of it and and still be left with a strong feeling, but not a strong feeling in a way that I would say is kind of like a toxic feeling. And, and so to come to terms with it in that way, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's funny that I'm going through something very similar right now. I, I wonder if, did your thing ever have like a public component to it where you felt a need to defend yourself in any way, but ultimately realized that would just make it worse? Yeah, I feel like there, I feel like there's some aspect of it. There's an aspect of wanting to control a story, right? Uh, oh man, totally. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wanting to, um, and again, that's the, like, well, it matters what other people think because um, not only is this untrue, but it's untrue in a kind of a, a, a distorted, uh, a very distorted way. Yeah. And, and that's, so yeah, absolutely was a part of it. Crazy. Well, it seems like all of us wind up going through. Isn't it interesting that we can all wind up going through the same sorts of things at different phases in our lives? I just feel like the, the human condition is, is the same for everyone. We, we try to pretend like everybody's experience is different, but I think it's just differently timed. <laughs> that's how I feel about everybody's life. They all go through the same stuff. That's probably wrong, but that's how I feel about it. What about, um, what about regret? Because certainly 
mixed up, I think, in anger and rage. At least this is definitely the case for me presently and has been the case in the past and will probably be the case again in the future. When you get mad or feel hurt or feel betrayed or whatever it is, there's regret has to be tied up in that because it feels like something was lost, whether it was an opportunity or a friendship or or a life for that matter. The, the, that can also be lost, of course. What do, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think regret is one of those interesting ones because the Stoics say, look, we shouldn't feel passions. We well, we shouldn't feel extreme emotions about things that are outside of our control. We should feel things about indifference. We should care about them, but not extreme things. But we should actually feel intensely. I mean, what Epictetus would say is we, we should ascribe the labels of good and bad to the things that are inside our control instead of just, I prefer this or I don't prefer this. No, virtue is actually good. Vice is actually bad. And so then there's this interesting, there's this interesting thing with regret. And there's kind of two ways you can take regret, right? Regret is like, I think there's regret that's kind of like grief or sadness, like, I I really wish that didn't happen. And then there's regret, like, I'm ashamed of what I did. Um, I feel guilty. And I guess I just want to maybe, maybe pull those apart. And so I think the, I think that I wish things would have gone differently. I mean, that's a very common, that's a very common feeling that is kind of a fati, right? That is embracing, embracing fate, embracing life as it happened, trying to come to terms with how things were. That's a very common stoic exercise. I don't think it's, I think it's simple, but I don't think it's easy. But I think the answer is simple, which is to say, you know, you obviously have no control over the past. You have to try to come to terms with it. You have to try to figure out the silver lining, figure out the way to the, the, the lesson there, the way that that obstacle could be turned to your benefit and how that will change your behavior moving forward. Seneca and Marcus Aurelius talk about circumscribing the present, right? Like if we can keep our focus in the now, um, that's, that's, that's the way, that's one of the most important ways to, to be happy not allowing it to, to drift into the past and not allowing it to become anxiety. So regret in the past, anxiety in the future. But then there's this question of, well, what if you were the jerk, right? What if you have regret and shame because you did the bad thing? Because isn't Epictetus, aren't the Stoics telling us that that was a bad thing? You, you acted viciously. And I think that's, I think that's a complicated question, um, and a difficult question. But what I try to do is the same kind of thing, which is the circumscribing of the present. So you're, you're correct that, that a bad thing happened then. And that person w- was you, but that person is not you now. And then again, same thing. Well, what do I, what do I do now in relation to that? So you acknowledge that you don't, you don't, um, ignore it, but, um, you also, again, reframe the focus to the present. Was that, which type of regret were you focusing on? Cause I made that distinction between the two. Well, earlier last week, last uh, Friday, I think at this point we talked, I did actually talk about both. I talked about an example where uh, a friend died and you feel regret because of things that didn't happen for him perhaps, or Mm -hmm. things that didn't happen. You didn't get a, you had an argument with him by accident or you didn't, weren't there for his birthday versus something like you decided to drive drunk and killed him in a car wreck as a result. And that those were two very different kinds of regret. And what's funny is we wound up at the same place. We wound up thinking the exact same thing. And in the first case, it's simpler said than done, but the answer is obvious. This is past Amor Fati, although I didn't say Amor Fati in the episode, same thing. But for the for the latter sort, the more serious sort, I would say, one that almost seems reasonable and logical for you to feel, that the answer is to realize that, hey, while everyone else might think you're a murderer for this, and there might be plenty of us outside judgment, and you do feel bad and you should feel bad because you did do 
something wrong. The answer to move forward from it is to say, that is who I was, and this is this is a nexus at which it doesn't have to be who I am anymore. I can choose right now. I can use this to choose to be different. And I think we're very, you know, it seems like we're very in alignment there. Yeah, I would say that's, that's the exact same argument because I, I think that I think that stoicism often has these two levels. One level is this kind of therapeutic, well, I don't want to be sad. What can stoicism tell me not to be sad? And it's like, well, what do you do in situations where you should be sad, right? <laughs> like some, like that, that's the question, right? It's not always about, okay, what's the stoic trick for me not to, not to feel bad because I drunk drove and killed somebody? Right. Well, maybe the stoic answer is you should feel bad there, right? But it's always proportional and it's always accurate. So any sort of story, I'm a monster, this sort of story, I don't deserve to live. Uh, my life is meaningless now. That's that's the, the the emotions that come from that. Those are passions because they're not grounded in reality. Those things are not true. Um, then other sorts of stories. Well, it, it it doesn't matter. You know, it it wasn't my fault. I didn't have any like I couldn't have controlled myself there. Those are also not true. So it's about it's about coming to see the world as it is and. That's more difficult in messy, complicated situations like this, where there is a bit of regret. There should be a bit of sadness because there is a bad thing that happened, but it's also proportional and it recognizes your capacity to make amends. It recognizes your capacity to act differently moving forward. And it recognizes these realities as well. And that's, that's the thing that I come back to in these messy situations. The stoic idea is always to see, to live in accordance with nature, which means to see things as they really are, to, to, to see the truth of the matter. And to not get caught up in either of these stories, the ones that numb the pain or the ones that overindulge in it. And again, much easier said than done. We're all practicing that. We're all working on it. But um, we, we see this and we, we admire those people, right? The people who maybe killed somebody and spend their life working on stopping gang violence, right? We don't, we don't look at those people just in common sense. We don't look at those people and, and judge them. We say, wow, that's amazing. And there is a sense in which that, that bad has been combated with a good. But there's also a responsibility there, right? That person has done something. That person has made a change. Um, and I think that responsibility is something we all have and something the Stoics would say comes with our capacity to change, right? Because we can change, we have that responsibility to do so. I also think it might be worth noting that in instances where we do view those people as being very amazing, I think that Dave's bread has a story like this, where I think the Dave, the guy who makes this bread that is, you know, it's like a $7 loaf of multi-seeded bread or something at this point, that I think he went to prison for murder or some very serious crime. And now he's doing a lot of good things in the community in the way that you've just said. And he's got this bread company that donates things to something. I'm not completely clear on the story. I should have probably done research, but it just <laughs> popped in my head. Um, I think it's important to note that while we recognize people like that, when they've gotten to that point, that that person, and that person might be you, not you, Michael, but the, the you listening, that might be you. There are no doubt decades of Dave's life where he was just ignoring everything that was being said about him, and he was focused on trying to make amends. And it's nice to think that maybe one day we'll be vindicated in some way, but it's probably more important, not probably, definitely is more important to be during that transition to get to that time, if it ever shows up, that, that we are heads down focused on making amends if that's what we need to do, and doing the work of getting through the regret or whatever it is that we're getting through, that we're focused on that and not on what people think of how we're doing it or what people will think of us one day. Yeah, I appreciate that framing. I, I think that's helpful. One thing I was trying to say there was that um, we can get caught up in stories, right? Like I've done this, so there's no there's no answer. And so what the Dave's Bread example is, is like, you're not, you're not making amends because you want to be Dave's Bread. 
because you, <laughs> you want people to shout you out on podcasts and you have a successful company, but it's, it's proof. It's, it's just evidence that things are not, uh, not hopeless, both morally and in terms of, um, you know, the way you think about yourself is not the way you would think about somebody else in the same situation. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21 year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you wanna learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life. We've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is a rock and roll city for sure. Get down! The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Okay, so this has been a good conversation. I think we've maybe got 10 or 15 minutes left. We've talked about MMA. We've talked about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. We've talked about bad experiences, getting through rage, getting through feelings of regret, and I mean, what's next on this grab bag of an episode, Michael? What, what should we talk about next? I'm always happy to talk about Epictetus. Is there any sort of Epictetus? Yeah, sure. We can talk about Epictetus. Let's start with Enchiridi on one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, so I recently discovered that Epictetus's name meant owned or possessed or bought or something, and, and that was very interesting to me. What are some What are some unique things about Epictetus, whether from one of his publications, or <laughs> publications is a strong word, from one of his works uh, uh, or from a story of his life that is lesser known. Because really all I know about Epictetus is that he was from Turkey when it was technically Greece, and or maybe that's not exactly right, and that he wrote the Enchiridion and, or well, he didn't write the Enchiridion, I guess his student wrote the Enchiridion, but had discourses, taught people, Roman guy, we all know him and we all love him. But I don't know any cool details about him. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff missing there. Do you have any cool details about Epictetus you would have discovered in doing your, I think you said your PhD? PhD thesis on him, correct? Yeah. So I mean, historically, there's. I mean, I, I obviously wish there was more, right? In terms of in terms of his background, he was a slave in Rome, right? After he was born in, in modern day Persia, as you mentioned. Something that I think is interesting to think about this too is 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 the way in which slavery is quite different from American slavery. So my understanding of Roman slavery, and again, my background's in philosophy, not classics. So learning all of this through my study of Epictetus, but there was opportunities for slaves to take up quite important positions in households. Opportunities for slaves to become educated, and Epictetus was in a fairly important household. So his uh, master, his owner 
was, however you like to, to, to phrase it, was actually in the um, the court of, of Nero, as I understand it. So there's that there is that connection once again, you know, through Seneca as well. You know, maybe they they they, they wouldn't have of you know, wouldn't have been in, in the exact same circles with each other, but there's this there's this connection once again to emperors of Rome through. Epictetus is owner, and then Epictetus is a slave in that household. And then obviously the story is, well, obviously, but the story is that he was given the opportunity to study, study philosophy. He learned it from Masonius Rufus in Rome and then opened up his school. One thing interesting, an interesting framing about this school, I think, in his time is that there is, um, he was, he, he's teaching basically young men, well-to-do young men who are maybe, you know, 18 to 15, preparing for a life in politics, preparing for a life in industry. And I, I, one thing that I, I, I was learning about was that there was this interesting reception of philosophy as well, where it was seen as something that was good to have, but something that is not good to dedicate your life to. Something that was seen as, you know, you wanted to be, you wanted to have your philosophical education, but you didn't want to become a philosopher. <laughs> that, that was embarrassing. For the right, you want you want to be smart, but you don't want to be a stinky old <laughs> Diogenes or a weird old Epictetus. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. So there's this dynamic in the in in, in his teachings and his discourses. And you can think about that as a liberal arts education, right? There's still this there's still this tradition, at least in the United States, of um, very wealthy people sending their kids not to do finance, but to go to these small liberal arts schools, but then they're expected to then leave them and go do uh, go do finance or go do work in the business world. And if they stayed there, then there's this kind of break. So there's this, there's this context where Epictetus actually has a very limited time with these people, and they're kind of potentially not as receptive as you might imagine them to be. And so there's this, there's this responsibility to get them turned into philosophers for the rest of their life, I would say, kind of shock them into pursuit for the rest of their life, because otherwise they're at risk of being that student that Epictetus makes fun of, the one who can recite all the lines of Chrysippus, but not actually um, act it out. And I remember, I think of this of like Boris Johnson, you know, this, this, there's, was able to recite these lines of um, it was either the Odyssey or the Iliad, and that was this example of this uh, private British education model, right? Where there's this education in the classics, this education in Greek, and Boris Johnson can say these lines of Homer from memory. But there's obviously this, or there's potentially this break here. I don't know enough about Boris Johnson to, to say more, but there's just because you can recite Homer doesn't mean necessarily you've, you've internalized these lessons. And so Epictetus, I think, is, is dealing with this, with these students in this kind of context, the ones who can, who can leave and go to Roman court and be, you know, yeah, I can, I can recite Chrysippus. Um, I've, I have my education education and logic, but they go around doing terrible things. And so he's trying to shock them out of this in the, in the moment that he has. And I thought that was kind of an, an interesting recontextualization of the discourses. These are, these, are, these are students, but not necessarily students who are coming because they love philosophy and not necessarily students who plan on doing this afterwards. So there's this moment in time you have to, to kind of put them on the path and pull them off the path of you know, being what people in that area are more likely to be, which is concerned with wealth concerned with your appearance and your reputation. I really love this because it gives me the idea that Epictetus, now, now I understand why he was so grumpy. He <laughs> thinks he's going to open up like the Juilliard of philosophy and get all these people who want to be philosophers. And instead, he accidentally opens like the Harvard Business School and he's having to teach a bunch of people a lot in five seconds and he's pissed off about it because it's never the school he wanted. That's well, he's, great. Exactly. he's like, you've got to learn this. And they're like, I can repeat it back to you. And he's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, that's that's not learning. What's going to be on the test, Epictetes? Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I need to get a. I need to have a good report card for my parents, uh, so they'll keep paying for it. Um, this kind of situation, and I think that's that's an interesting context. And I, I 
I think you're dead on. I never put that connection, but th- that is where there's the, the, there's the grumpiness, right? There is this, I've got a responsibility to kind of shock you out of your complacency. I've got a, uh, I've got a responsibility to make a difference here with the time I have. I can't remember what the name of the movie is, but the teacher walks in and the kids are, you know, it's like an inner city high school and they get them really excited about Shakespeare. And I, I want to say that it's Danny DeVito. Is it? I know the one you're talking about. I think I know the one you're talking about. Uh, I don't remember Danny DeVito. Um, I'm thinking like a Hillary Swank or something, but same kind of thing. So who is the, who is the, I'm saying Danny DeVito, I guess, why not? <laughs> we'll stick with Danny DeVito. <laughs> yeah, who is the Danny DeVito version in the Stoic uh, philosophical um, tradition? Is is there an is there an antithesis to Epictetus's grumpiness? Is there somebody who's the opposite of him? Somebody who's more um, outgoing. I mean, not Masonius Rufus, so <laughs> right. maybe, maybe not. There's this excellent line about Masonius Rufus. I, I, so we've been talking about sport and, and I, I was doing some research into Masonius Rufus's treatment of sport. Like do the Stoics think exercise is actually helpful to develop character? I can talk about it. I can make these analogies, but do they actually think it's helpful? We know the Stoics don't think you should be brutal on your body. Like they don't think, you know, the, the kind of the ice bath, the restricting, restricting your food, going through pain. They're, they're not a fan of this. Uh, they don't think it's necessary. But one thing that Masonius Rufus talks about is he's in, he's in Rome and he's, uh, talking to um, examples of talking to Spartans, Spartans and being like, wow, there's actually something to this because these teenagers are not like the other teenagers. And he's saying, he's teaching this lecture and he's saying, you know, pain is a, or pleasure is an indifferent. That might be very surprising to you. Pain is an indifferent. And the, the Spartans go, but Masonius, isn't, isn't pain a good, like, isn't that, isn't that a good thing because of all their athletics training and all their brutal, uh, their brutal training. And Masonius goes, look, it's, it's not a good, but I'd much rather have a student who comes to me thinking that that's one that's much easier to train than a student who's had all the pleasures and luxuries their whole life. And you have to untrain this thinking that, that pleasure is a good. And that is the moment that Musonius decided to dupe Epictetus into taking on the project of the Harvard <laughs> Business School Philosophy School. And he would go and and uh, Yeah, he'll keep those he'll keep those guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael. Well, hey, man, this has been fun. Thank you for uh, going with me on this very strange journey where we had nothing planned. I appreciate it. You, you showed up with almost no notice, and I, I'm, I'm grateful to you for that. Is there anything that you want to uh, promote or make people aware of in these last couple of minutes? Yeah, I mean, well, so I've got the um, Stoa Conversations podcast. If you thought, you know, hey, this guy sounds reasonably interesting. I want to hear a little bit more of that. There, there's an episode with, with, with yourself, Tanner, if you want that as a, as a starting place. Uh, we uh, co-host Caleb and I, we talk philosophy we talk stoicism and we talk to a variety of guests, you know, academics, authors, experts about really this question of philosophy as a way of life. Uh, that, that's really what, what interests us. We also, as, as you know, Tanner, have our, our app, Stoa, Stoic Meditations. And the, the goal for that app is to provide a platform where people can put stoicism into practice. So you've got the theory, you want the practice. This is a place where you, through mindful meditations, through lessons, you, you develop a routine of really active reflection, active thinking. The kind of a, a journaling process or really a reflection on your day or a active reflection on these concepts. So you, you maybe you've heard about the dichotomy of control. Maybe you've heard about the stoic theory of the passions, but let's actually do some guided meditations to reflect on those, see how they apply to your life. Um, and that's a project that I'm, I'm just very passionate about because trying to figure out effective ways to help people put stoicism into their life a, l- a little bit at a time, very similar to, to what you're doing, Tanner. And I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and chat with you. It's, it's always a lot of fun to, to chat. Of course, man. So where can they find the podcast? Is it just Stoa Meditations or Stoa Conversations, I should say, dot com? Yeah, so it's, it's Stoa Conversations. You can find that uh, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you find your podcasts. And then uh, Stoa Stoic Meditations, 
that is on the uh, Google Play Store. That's on the Apple App Store. So anyway, anywhere you get your uh, either your phone apps, wherever that is, wherever, these days. wherever <laughs> that is, like that. The, I I use I have my I have my iPhone. That's what I use. Okay, cool, Michael. Thank you for being here. I'll let you go. And everyone, until next time, consider becoming a patron of this podcast by going to stoicismpod.com forward slash members. And until next time, take care. Thank you.